you know, when Al, Al Regnery said, gee, you ought to interview this, this author, uh, Brandon Weikert, who's written this book, Space Warfare, I thought, well, I'm really interested in that. That's a yeah. big topic. And then I went on your website, and then I started looking at some YouTubes, and I realized, no, wait a second, you know everything about Russia, China, Eurasia, yeah. um, our nuclear capabilities, yeah. uh, you know, I've, and you also, you're also an historian. I mean, one of the things I like about what you've done is you've written so many, you go deeply into, you know, the Napoleon or, or yeah. the, you know, the, the, the Roman Empire to, to yeah. tie this all together. And it's really, it's really great. Well, fun. thank you. Thank you. Uh, by the you way, how did you become such a polymath? I don't know. Uh, you know, I come from a, uh, a pretty simple middle class background. Uh, you know, I, I just I was always curious. I mean, my grandfather helped to raise me and he was a, a very deep student of history. And I remember as a little kid, always hearing stories of his time in, in, in the service. And, uh, you know, he was a cold warrior and uh, I just was raised with an interest in history and at a very early age. And ever since then, it just sort of snowballed, uh, you know, into me following that, that trajectory. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, because I, I was an okay student in high school. I was an okay student in undergrad. And then I got into my master's program and I really just kind of became on fire for these subjects. I went to the Institute of World Politics in Washington, DC, uh, which is a small program. Um, and I went there because a lot of, I was working on the Hill at the time, a lot of my interns were going there and they were like, you got to come. It's really, it's, it's really cool. And so I went and I got one-on-one -on -one training with some really incredible academics who were scholar practitioners. They're very proud of that um, in the intelligence field. And then got to go to, to Oxford for a period of time. It was like an awakening. And I just, I've always been interested in these things and I find patterns and I write about the patterns I see and uh, people seem to like it. So I keep doing it. Well, let's get started. Yeah. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, with Ukraine and Russia much in the news, one of the things that I get very concerned about is, is this going to lead us into a World War III? Um, it seems like we may be backing Vladimir Putin into a corner, a corner where he can't be seen to be losing, and I'm worried about the kind of capabilities which the Russians may unleash, and they have not unleashed most of what they have to, uh, to unleash, uh, what, what might happen next? And my friend Al Regnery recommended I talk with a brilliant guy, uh, Brandon Weikert, although he's been introduced as a brilliant and anxiety-inducing scholar. Uh, <laughs> he's a geopol geopolitical, geotechnology analyst. Uh, he worked on the congressional staff. Uh, he's an advisor to the U.S. military and a lot, of, uh, a lot of technology firms. And his expertise is space, space warfare, uh, Russia, China, China, Eurasia. He's also got a deep knowledge of history. Um, his book, which we will talk about, but it's a part of the conversation, is called Winning Space, 
how America remains a superpower. Uh, Brandon, where do we start? <laughs> let's get into it. Um, let's let's first start with where we are right now today, and and Ukraine and Russia. You've you've been written writ, writing extensively about that. Where do you where do you think we are? Well, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that since uh, the COVID-19 virus was loosed upon the world, either intentionally or accidentally from Wuhan, China, uh, we're not living in the world that you and I came up in, and certainly me, uh, that I came up in, that sort of post-Cold War unipolar world system. That's gone. Uh, there are, it's not coming back. And so we're in a new world now. Uh, and that new world is going to look a lot like the world that came before 1945, which is kind of scary. Um, and so what we're seeing in Ukraine, in my opinion, this Russo-Ukrainian conflict is but the first of many conflicts uh, that will emanate over the next decade. I call in my book, the 2020s, the decade of concern. Uh, and, and I think that if we can get through this decade, we might be able to find a more stable, more prosperous period in the 2030s and beyond. But the 2020s are going to be a most unstable decade, and you're seeing that now. And so the Russo-Ukrainian conflict is but the, the first of many um, territorial, sort of old school, old world conflicts of the sort that we thought we wouldn't have to see ever again. Certainly in Europe, you know, sort of post-historical, post-modern Europe, it's happening there first in many respects, and it will uh, propagate outward from there. Uh, and so that's that's sort of the big picture, is that we're in a new world order. Uh, it's really a disorder. Uh, there is no one single power anymore. And you're seeing now the this sense of opportunity for the world's great military powers, whether it be the United States, Russia, or China, primarily those three powers. But Russia now is the first to take advantage of what they think is a window of opportunity. And they're going to push and push and push and push until, you know, pushing through mush, probing with bayonets until they hit steel. And so far, they've not hit steel. The Ukrainians are doing a, a bang up job of, of really trying to hold their own. But ultimately, as you noted, the Russians have not fully deployed all of their capabilities. And I don't know if they're going to, because ultimately, Putin only wants the eastern portion of Ukraine. That is his primary objective. Everything else is gravy. Everything else is ancillary. So if he can maybe get Western Ukraine, he'll, he tried that. So far, he can't. So I think he's recalibrating. And I think ultimately, if he can get Eastern Ukraine uh, and really formally get that recognized as part of Russia, and he's going to, I think, if he can neutralize Ukraine as being a member of a potential member of NATO, which he will, uh, and if he can sort of keep pressure on Western Ukraine for the next eight years, the way he kept pressure on Eastern Ukraine over the last eight years, um, ultimately, I think Putin thinks that he or possibly his successor uh, will ultimately be able to cleave all of Ukraine with these salami slice tactics over time. Well, how much of a blunder was it for us to, you know, this is, I saw something last night, Nigel Farage, who led the mm. Brexit uh, effort in the UK, uh, gave a speech in 2014. At the time, I think it was Crimea that was in the headlines. And his point was that we really brought a lot of this on ourselves because we're 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 putting Ukraine in play, right? By forcing them into or inviting them into NATO, and uh, you know, you look at a map, and <clears throat> I'm a I'm a Wall Street creature. I've done a lot of private equity and finance right. and things like that. I've not done a lot of geo 
uh, political politics and strategy, but you look at a map and Ukraine kind of sits there in the map. It looks pretty much like Texas looks to the United States. It's right. not exactly some remote place that uh, they're fighting over. And by wanting Ukraine to be part of NATO, it seems like Putin, you're just inviting Putin to uh, to strike back. Right. Right. And actually, that's a great analogy is, is to Texas, because uh, geographically, like Texas, uh, Ukraine is ge geographically very flat. It's sort of centrally located. It's got a bunch of other places nearby that are easily accessible should you be able to invade through Ukraine, which is one of the reasons why Putin is invading, because he's ultimately trying to link his power base in Russia, not only with Ukraine, but also Transnistria, Moldova. Uh, he's also trying to, I think, put pressure on Romania, which many experts believe is the weak link in the NATO eastern flank. Uh, and ultimately, this is part of a larger design to put greater pressure on Poland and to seek revenge upon Poland, I think. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think Putin's what, what, what is he thinking right now in terms of how the West has responded, the EU, NATO, the United States, the economic sanctions? How's he feeling? How much of this did he anticipate or... Well, he anticipated a lot of it, but I think he's very surprised by how rapidly the West was able to corral itself. Um, you have to understand the, the signals the, the West has been sending out for the last several years has been that we are not on the same page, our allies with us, and ultimately you can divide and conquer. And I think that can still possibly happen. You mean the United States was not on the same page yes. with Europe and with so the on? European, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, with yeah. the European allies, yeah, particularly Germany and France. Yeah. Uh, and I think that Putin just assumed, especially under Biden, who he thought was just going to give away Europe, uh, particularly after their meeting last year in which Biden removed the Trump sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that was linking Russian natural gas with Europe markets, European markets through Germany. I think the assumption on Putin's part was, hey, the Americans are stepping away. I can, yeah. I can ha we'll run roughshod. And I think that Moscow and the Kremlin were very surprised how quickly the Europeans, not just America, but the Europeans were sort of saying, we're not going to let this fly in Ukraine, at least not without a fight. Wasn't the German reaction flabbergasting? It was very flabbergasting, yes. Yes, it was very flabbergasting because initially, you know, they didn't want to do anything in response to Ukraine because they need the energy from, from Russia. Uh, and the French were sort of tagging along with the Germans. But yeah. then as time went on, as the aggression was, and I think you have to understand, everybody in Europe, a lot of the Western Europeans and the Southern Europeans assumed that this was all a bluff by Putin, that this mm -hmm. was all one big negotiating tactic. And as I was writing at the time in the Asia Times, this was not a bluff, that this was it for Putin, that he had been making clear since, as you just noted, since the Americans were pushing Ukraine to become a NATO member publicly, we had basically removed neutrality from Ukraine, which then made it a geopolitical hot potato. And so for Putin, it was he needed to move while he thought the West was weak. And he thought under Biden, the West was weak. And he thought that with Germany, he could really get away with a lot. And so he was very surprised by the reaction overall by the West. Now, we still haven't gone all the way uh, in terms of, of really solidifying our, our unity with Poland and the Eastern Europeans. And so there's still weakness on display there. But we have gone hard against Russia, harder than I thought Putin thought we would, which has forced him to recalibrate. But ultimately, the question is, will he cease and desist? And I think the answer is no, 
because he's so heavily invested now in Ukraine that if he pulls back without at least walking away with Eastern Eastern Ukraine, he's going to look very weak and that will invite challenge to his authority at home. And ultimately his regime survival is the raison d'etre for Putin's entire existence. So he can't walk away with nothing. So he'll he'll go all the way up the escalation ladder if he can't at least get Eastern Ukraine. Well, how, uh, boy, this leads to so many questions, but I guess one of them is what is the likelihood of regime change? You've written, and I think I agree, that the oligarchs in Russia are in it with him. Yeah. And they've been that in it with him from the very beginning. And while they're they're leaving the country, I guess, to go to wherever oligarchs go to get out of Russia. Dubai and the seashells, mostly. Okay. <laughs> All right. yeah. Wherever it is, they're still they're still pretty much with him. And so he's yeah. not he's not all that vulnerable. Uh, right. Now, is it also true? Has he removed his family to uh, uh, yeah. a secret location? And my understanding. Yeah, my understanding bunker? is not only had did he several weeks ago now remove his family uh, to an undisclosed nuclear bunker. In fact, one of the reports I was reading is that his kids and his, at least one of his, the women in his life, because he's got multiple women, uh, one of the women in his life are living in a Soviet-era underground nuclear city uh, that has all the accoutrements of a, of a modern you know, city that's reserved, that was reserved for the Soviet elite. They're living there and they've been there for the last four weeks. Um, House some five or 6,000 people, maybe more. Right, right, right. My understanding now there's reports coming out that Putin himself, one of the reasons he's been so militant is because he's physically disconnected from his advisors and generals in one of these bunkers. And he's been living there since the start of the invasion. So he's literally been living underground. And now, as you noted, the oligarchs have fled the country with their possessions, which tells me at least they're thinking in Russia among the elite that this thing might go nuclear. And they've taken action to preserve their physical well-being and their financial well-being to ride out whatever nuclear hellfire storm is initiated. So I think our policymakers in Washington, and this is what I told the Pentagon last week when I was up in D.C., our policymakers in Washington, I think, are not understanding that, A, just as they thought his uh, Putin's move in uh, building up against Ukraine was a bluff, and that wasn't, Putin's threats that he'll go nuclear are not a bluff. This is not dealing with Khrushchev or even Brezhnev, who ultimately understood they needed to step down at the end uh, from the nuclear threat. This is a guy who has nothing left to lose. He's in his 70s. The average lifespan for Russian males is 66. So he's outlived most of his average Russian male citizens by about four years now. This is a guy who has banked his entire regime on the notion that he will make Russia great again. And that is by uh, preserving the gains they've made over the last 30 years and also expanding Russia's geopolitical influence into the former Soviet Eastern European states, notably Ukraine. So if he loses Ukraine, then he's delegitimized himself, Putin thinks, and he cannot have for that. So he will go all of the way. This is why he sent he he sent a hypersonic missile a week uh, two weekends ago into Lviv, uh, the supposedly safe part of Western Ukraine, and he blew up uh, a NATO supply depot. Uh, he this is why he's threatening to escalate bombing in Western 
uh, excuse me, Eastern Poland, where those supply chains are coming out of carrying weapons. This is why he's threatening full on cyber warfare against the United States mainland and why we're not prepared for it. And we should be. Uh, this is why he has consistently signaled in space that he will attack American satellite constellations to keep us back, to keep us from supplying Ukrainian resistance. And this is why he's willing to go nuclear. He will not brook a defeat in Ukraine. But has Russia changed? I mean, the, the Soviets always had a first strike doctrine. They were ready to use it. And there was the, you know, the, the, the Soviets toasted 20, 25 million people in World right. War II. They used a big chunk of the population right. as cannon fodder, and they just overwhelmed people with uh, their victory came at enormous uh, cost in human lives. But has Russian society changed any in the last 20 years where Putin doesn't have that ability to do that with that? Is there not the oligarchs, but are there other parts of Russia that are saying, look, we're not going to be uh, you know, nuclear, a nu nuclear cannon fodder uh, this time around? Uh, I don't. I, so my, my read on Russia is they don't have as many people as they used to, but there is this certain sort of apocalyptic mentality that has set in with the Russians. Uh, their fertility rates are chronically low. They're not having enough babies. Um, their borders continue to contract over the last 30 years, which is one of the reasons why Putin is A, so popular with people because he's trying to restore the old borders and B, uh, why people don't want to turn on him is because he's seen as strong and he's going to somehow reverse this decline. And so there's a certain sense of fatalism that's set in with the Russian people in general. Now, a lot of the Russian people don't like the war, the ordinary citizen, because it's their kids and their family who are in the meat grinder. But then again, um, I don't see them overthrowing him and I don't see the Russian elite really caring about the ordinary Russian opinion they don't care. They don't live in a democracy like you or I do. You know, ultimately, George W. Bush with, with Iraq had to contend with popular opinion. And this was one of them. I mean, remember in 2006, there were things that George W. Bush wanted to do in Iraq that he ultimately was prevented from doing when the Democrats took over in 2006 Congress. And so he had to hold back. This is why he ultimately changed the strategy in Iraq that he had been holding fast to. In Russia, they don't really have that. They don't have the kind of political backlash that an American president would that would force them to alter the, the strategy. Well, at, at what point do we, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here talking with the brilliant Brandon Weikert, uh, geopolitical strategist and author of Winning Space, about where Russia is now in this conflict with Ukraine and, and what their vulnerabilities may be. Is there... At what point do we back Putin into the corner with conventional yeah. pushback from Ukraine where he feels like he's got to use a, a tactical nuke? Well, and that's the thing. So you mentioned the preemptive warfare, a nuclear warfare doctrine. Now, it's true on the strategic level, um, sort of with ICBMs and sort of the, the, the nation killing nukes. It is true that Putin, I don't think, wants to strike first with those. However, at the tactical level, the, the non-strategic nuclear weapons, those sort of small nukes that the Soviets designed. Well, well the difference between tactical and strategic is simply the range, is it right. not? I mean, the, the lethality right. well, is roughly the same. Uh, it, the yields are smaller on a tactical okay. nuke. Okay, all right. Well, so basically, the tactical nukes... It's a, it's a small nuclear... Right, nuclear right. Well, you, well, so you got to think about the way the Russians do, right? 
So the yeah. Russians look at tactical nuclear weapons as just big artillery pieces. They don't understand the American sort of apocalypticism when it comes to any nuclear weapon. In fact, going back to the 1960s, the old Red Marshal V.D. Sokolovsky, he created the Soviet military doctrine that is explicitly called for Soviets using uh, tactical nuclear weapons preemptively against NATO lines if the Russian command authority or the Soviet command authority ever decided to invade NATO, they would first strike the NATO defenses with tactical nukes to soften up the, the resistance. And so that old doctrine was with the Soviets until about 19, uh, what was it, 1987, whenever Chernobyl happened in the 80s. And then Gorbachev changed that doctrine. But... Vladimir Putin in the 2010s reinstituted that doctrine at the tactical level, and he has continued with that doctrine. And so my concern is, as you know, the Russians have not performed well at the conventional level. They have been slowed down. They were initially planning a desert storm like, you know, modern, fast moving invasion that sort of cut through Ukrainian lines with conventional forces like butter the way the Americans did to Iraq. Ultimately, he wasn't able to achieve that. So pretty quickly, the Russians shifted back to their old mentality of warfare with conventional forces, which was bloody, brutal, slogging, slow. And that's what you saw, the uncoiling going on for the last several weeks, even now, sort of like less of a lightning war, more of an anaconda, you know, slowly unfurling around their enemy. Um, but even that is not performed as well as the Russians thought. So now they're shifting and recalibrating to just focusing on Mariupol and the eastern part of the country. However, it is my belief that Putin envisioned taking the whole country. And so if he can't find a, a, um, a way to save face where he can keep the eastern portion and seriously weaken and debilitate the western portion, then he will start looking at that other strategy of nuclear escalation. Well, and that we, is where we are. Uh, I quite agree. And shouldn't we provide some leadership here and step in and say, look, we're going to take NATO off the table. Right. We understand your geo geostrategic concerns. Uh, let's figure out a way to make a peace here that, that saves a little face on both sides right. and move on with it and de-escalate this. My right. concern is I don't see anybody in the Biden administration. Right. It seems like they all want to talk tough. And these right. people well, that's I don't the think thing. have any clue. That's the thing. You know, ironically, there are a bunch of red diaper babies, uh, you know, <laughs> who were very soft on the Soviet Union, uh, particularly Biden in the 80s, was a big supporter of the nuclear freeze movements against Reagan. And of course, it turns out a lot of those nuclear freeze movements are being funded by the KGB. Um, but, uh, you know, here we have today, those same red diaper babies are actually very tough on Russia. And this this gets back to the fact that Vladimir Putin is not a communist. And he he is um, uh, more of a sort of I don't want to say right wing, but he is more on the right uh, in terms of Russian politics. And so the, 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 the Democrats have this sort of allergy to that. Um, but that doesn't mean that Putin's not a threat. He is a huge He's back in the regular old autocrat. That's world. right. He's a czarist. He's back yeah, in the czar. He's a czar. Still, I mean, uh, but that yeah. doesn't mean they're a friend, right? So <clears> the, the Democrats, though, are overreacting, I think, because it should be Biden on the phone with Putin every day trying to de-escalate. And if anything, I, it, from what I can tell, he's not interested in de- In fact, he flies to, to Warsaw this last week. And he actually ends up at a time when it looked like Putin and Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, were starting to de-escalate. Biden comes in and makes three, it up. 
Right. He makes these three comments that are insane. Yeah. He yeah. says first, uh, you know, Biden, Putin's a war criminal and that there's legal ramifications to that. Then he goes on and he goes to the 82nd Airborne in Poland and he says, when you're in Ukraine, you'll see what I'm talking about. What does that mean? Does that mean we're sending the 82nd Airborne into, into Ukraine? And then the third thing he says is that, uh, you know, the, the, the Putin must go. Putin must go. Almost sounding like George H.W. Bush about Saddam Hussein in 91. And then the fourth thing he says the next day after this is, you know, these controversial remarks are, are, are catching a lot of heat in the press is he says, look, if, if, if Putin attacks Ukraine with chemical weapons, I'll respond with chemical weapons. You know, well, what does that mean? And he's not walking any of this back. In fact, he's coming out and, and contradicting or contradicting his his ministers, his foreign policy experts, who are then trying to say, well, the president didn't really mean that. Biden comes out and said, that's exactly what I meant. In fact, I'm going to double down on that. He's escalating. And he, and he should have been out there de-escalating because what's being offered right now, what Zelensky and Putin are talking about, is no different than what would have happened had we not had the war, which is Eastern Ukraine goes to Russia and we de-escalate and we talk about NATO not being, or Ukraine not being a part of NATO. This is what we would have had six or eight weeks ago had all been left alone. But unfortunately now we have this bloodshed and it looks like Putin is willing to stand down, but then Biden is ratcheting up. Why? Why? Well, we, we're going to have to fathom Joe Biden's mind, and I'm not sure. I don't think I'm qualified. I think you need a medical opinion on that we one, right? We need a medical opinion. Right. Uh, but this is the most anti-nuclear administration in history, and red diaper, red, what would we call them, red diaper babies? Right. So on the one hand, they've, they're, they're, they've been working to dismantle, in fact, our new nuclear arsenal if they could, while at the same time in, inviting um, a, a cataclysm. The dichotomy here seems right. stunning. Well, it is, and it's ideological, and it shows you how blinkered they are. Uh, you know, at the same, remember, a lot of these are Obama holdovers, a lot of these personnel choices. Remember, under Obama, not only did we have the New START agreement with Russia that gave them a superiority in tactical nuclear weapons, but it also it also led to um, uh, the the sort of unilateral disarmament of our nuclear weapons arsenal in general. Obama was a big believer in that, and Biden, who during his Senate years in the '80s, as I mentioned, was a leader of the nuclear freeze movement against Reagan. That hasn't changed. He has whatever gray matter he has left intact. Biden is still very much anti-nuclear weapons, and we have an enemy in Russia and China who are ramping up their nuclear weapons arsenals at a time that we're letting ours wither on the vine, and we don't have a strategic doctrine that really makes sense anymore at the nuclear level. Do you uh, you were you're talking to 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 Poland people in Poland? What, how are they right. feeling right now? What do they see? They're very worried. They're worried about a this administration. And B, they're worried about Europe being left to the Germans and the French, who are inimical to any kind of long-term standing up against Russia. And so under, under the former Trump administration, it was the Three Seas Initiative, which basically gave priority to the Baltic states, those former Soviet states in Eastern Europe, with Poland as the nucleus of resistance. Under Biden, one of the first things he did was shift focus away from Poland and the Eastern Europeans and return it back to that sort of 1980s, 1990s mentality of Germany and France lead the way. That's a very dangerous proposition because they don't view Russia necessarily as an enemy. They view it as a potential strategic partner and as a business partner.
Well, Angela Merkel certainly did not view Russia as an enemy in any no, no, sense. No, she did not. But we've got a new new leader there. He he was talking tough the first few weeks after uh, right after this all broke. Where where is he now, and where do you think? Well, Germany ultimately, ultimately, the German elite are on the same page with each other, which is that you know they don't want to see they don't want to see the bad things happen to Ukraine, but at the same time, they don't want to risk the bottom line. And they, Germany in particular, is the economic beating heart of the European Union. It is the de facto leader of the European Union because the European Union is primarily an economic alliance. They, Germany is the de facto leader of the European Union now that Britain is out. And so ultimately, they need Russia to be on their side. So while they may, you know, ding Russia for these really egregious actions in the near term, in the long run, and this is the concern of Poland, in the long run, Germany cannot be relied on. And then you pair Germany with France, which while France isn't the economic power in, in the continent, it certainly is the, the, the military power on the continent. Um, they oh, also France. view they also view Russia as a potential potential balancer not only against China, but more importantly, inexplicably against the Americans. And so, you know, we have to we have to consider that that Biden is ceding Europe to two powers that are ultimately going to resist and 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 defy American and Eastern European wishes and needs to be strong against Russia in the long run. A lot of questions. Are the economics the, the economics action seems to have done a lot of damage to the to the Russian economy. Your take? In the near term, um, unfortunately, all this has done uh, has been to force Russia to start cultivating their own domestic capabilities. After the Cold War, the, the, the Russian Federation became heavily reliant on American finance and Western capital. Now that they know how easy, literally almost with the flick of a switch, we can send Russia back 30 years economically. Now Vladimir Putin is having to create alternative means to ensuring that Russia's economy remains free and strong. And so while they've certainly been damaged bigly, as the former president would say, <laughs> uh, they have not been totally destroyed. In fact, what they've done now is pivot harder to the east. And they're now becoming more reliant on China. And of course, Beijing's very happy because they want that Russian military power on their side and they need Russia's natural resources. And so now you have this even deeper pairing of, of, of Russian and Chinese power, the autocratic alliance of Eurasia that's now forged in deep anti-Americanism forming. You now have also the complication of India. We, I also do a lot of work with the Indians. We need India against China, and yet India is fiercely independent. They've been dependent on Russian military equipment for decades. They don't want to abandon that, that uh, Russian uh, uh, alliance for multiple reasons, uh, least of all because they don't want to be too reliant on any one power in the West because of the colonial history in India. So now you have Russia turning to India, India reciprocating, and then you have also now this weird alliance where, where India doesn't like China, China doesn't like India, and they're fighting each other in northern India. And yet, over the issue of Russia, India and China are coordinating to help Russia evade Western sanctions in the long run. And so See, now you have this sort of, you know, Eastern uh, or this sort of Central Eurasian economic uh, 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 condominium forming, uh, which over time will be a problem to America's ability to sanction. It, it seems like the smart move would have been three, five years ago to start drawing Russia in 
yes. with us as opposed to acting like they're the Soviet Union. Right. And my understanding is President Trump wanted to do that. Absolutely. couldn't do it because of the way the whole Russia That's right. election collusion hoax uh, right. uh, came about. So he, he had his hand tied, couldn't do anything about it. And That's then right. We see Biden come in and talking like Elmer Fudd uh, right. fighting. You know, it's ridiculous to watch this man uh, try to be a leader. Right. Um, Especially because when you look at what he did last year, Biden came in beating his chest at Russia. And yet the first thing he did was remove the most onerous sanctions that Trump had put right. on. So, you know, talk about schizophrenia at the policy level. You know, at the same time, he wants to cry havoc and let slip the dogs of Cold War 2.0 on Russia. He's giving Russia the kind of economic lifeblood that they need by allowing for Nord Stream 2 to go on. By the way, um, Nord Stream 2, yes, the, 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 the project was canceled, but the pipeline is physically complete. It's ready to go. They just need um, to turn it on. They just need to turn it on. Second yeah. of all, EO1, which is the German company, I believe it's the German company that manages Nord Stream 1, has already said under no circumstances will we cut off the Russian natural gas coming into Europe over NS1. And so this sort, this whole sort of, uh, you know, we, we, we cut off Nord Stream 2, yeah, that hurts Russia. But now that China and India are filling in for the lost uh, capabilities uh, of Russia selling natural gas to Europe, now it's going to India and China, it doesn't really matter. Russia's able to sell. And now Russia's demanding that they sell, uh, that that all purchasers of Russian natural gas do it on the ruble. Um, it doesn't really matter anymore. In the long term, they're probably going to be able to prop up the Russian economy this way. And so if anything, it gives greater independence in the long term to Moscow, and it actually weakens the ability of NATO and, and America to sort of hem in Russia economically. So this has been a nightmare scenario. We've really created our own enemy. You're right. What, what, what President Trump was trying to do, this was Mike Flynn's strategy in 2017 and 2018. The big push was how do we flip Russia? We may not yeah. be able to make them a perfect ally, but how do we make them enough of a friend where they will help us contain China and they will go after the Islamists in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in uh, North in North Africa? Ultimately, we've lost that. We've lost that. Well, yeah, and uh, you know, our response to pour out, get people to pour out Russian vodka and not go to mm -hmm. Russian restaurants. I mean, to, to to demonize Russia, Russian people in the way that, that the, the jingoists are, are, are right. doing is crazy. It's, uh, it's insane and it's offensive as well. Because and, you know, the, you know, one of the iron laws of economics, which is probably my long suit, is the law of unintended consequences. Yep. And we've got unintended consequence after consequence. And one of my concerns is the dollar's role as a world reserve currency. What we're beginning exactly. to see in the oil markets is that China is now negotiating with Saudi Arabia to buy right. its oil and in, in and and what is it? India wants to is yep. trying to buy their gas with rupees. Yep. Yep. And everything else, currency blocks are beginning to line up. Yep. People are so we're we're really jeopardizing. We are so we are the masters of our self destruction as a world power, or the greatest power. Um, you know, you look at the last 30 years, the people who've been running foreign policy and economic policy in this country are the same people who got us into Iraq. They're the same people who sort of helped yeah. to create multiple bubbles. You know, it used to be that a bubble was a once in a generation event. We've had like six or seven of them in my lifetime and they're getting worse. And I think we're in another bubble now. And so you look at this people that we've had running the show, if you will, 
in national policy for the last 30 years. It's the same people who are getting us now into Russia. It's the same people who are getting us into these messes. How can we expect them to get us out of these messes when they've gotten us into these messes? They can't. And so that's why everything's getting worse now in response to these crises. And Donald Trump and the people he was bringing in, a lot of them, I knew a lot of them, were sort of um, unorthodox. They weren't from that cloistered elite. They were from different places with different new ideas and they were hated for it and they were pushed out and they were investigated wrongly and they were, you know, turned into these criminals when they weren't. And, and that was the opportunity to really change the dynamic and to preserve the power that we had inherited from our, you know, the 1945 onward, that group. And we've squandered it. And, and I believe in the next decade, you're going to be looking at a new world order uh, of a multipolar one. And America has lived in that before, but we were never the dominant power in the multipolar orders of before. It was Europe before Russia. And now we're going into a period of relative weakness, relative decline, and we're not managing it well because we have people who don't understand we can't act the way we've been and expect some kind of different you know, result. It's going to make things worse, not better. Uh, this is Bill Walton show. I, I'm here uh, with Brandon uh, Weikert, and we're talking about uh, the kind of the strategic hole that the United States put itself into with uh, not being able to think things through. Uh, uh, and, and Brandon, we talk, I want to, I'm beginning to feel like we need to go on for four or five different shows to cover everything. I'm happy to. Well, we will. We're going to. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to do is just sort of take us to where we talked about tactical nu yeah. nuclear weapons. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that could be done. EMP. Absolutely. Uh, uh, other sorts of you and you wrote your book on space warfare. What are the other options that the Soviet or the Russians have to uh, to do things that they haven't done. So uh, in my book, I open and then the book was finished uh, in December of 2019. It was a totally different world when I submitted the manuscript. Uh, we're actually doing an update of it now uh, for a paperback version. But at the time, I was please, looking at Please it. do that because yeah. it, it, there's so much in there, but it, it, it would be great to right. see version but two. The first chapter is 2022, the year Space Pearl Harbor happens. And if you remember in the book, it's Russia, not China. And at the time, everybody was saying Russia is not a threat. In fact, our, you know, our friend Al Regnery was saying, are you sure you want to do the, the opening chapter about Russia, not about China? I said, yeah, I think we have to do it because I think I think Russia is going to go first. They're going to be the first ones to push us around. Uh, it's sort of like there's a long line in the queue now. Uh, and uh, it'll be Russia, then Iran, then then North Korea, and lastly, China. Um, uh, sort of like a Marvel comic book movie where the, the bad guys are lining up in sort of staggered order. Um, but Russia's going to go first because they're, they're the ones who've been building out these space capabilities, uh, real world space capabilities the, in, the, in the last decade. Um, Russia reorganized their space, their, their military to fight and win a space war against the United States in 2010. 2010. Um, Russia has been since 2012, 2013, deploying uh, what they call Stribitel Sputnikov. And these are small co-orbital satellites. Uh, my, my colleague, formerly of the RAND Corporation, Brian G. Chow, uh, coined the term space stalker. Uh, basically, these are small co-orbital satellites that tailgate our larger sensitive satellites in orbit. And at the drop of a hat, can latch onto our satellites with these grappling claws and physically either, you know, rip them apart or more likely push them out of orbit 
our systems and rendering our forces that are reliant on those uh, satellites deaf, dumb, and blind. And so you win the space war, you damage America's space capability, you deprive us of access to the strategic high ground of space in a crisis, and you've basically ensured that America's interoperable, uh, you know, integrated, highly technological force is rendered deaf, dumb, and blind. We can't win or fight, really, a modern war then. And we don't have a large enough military to go back and fight a pre-1970s style of, you know, a Vietnam War type conflict. Well, the Russians and the Chinese, they can fight that because most of their forces are still, uh, you know, at that 1970s era of, of warfare. And so if you remove that highly integrated technological, uh, you know, style of, of military that we've, we've built up since the Cold War, we can't win. We can't fight as well. And so the Russians have, have been seeding the orbits. Uh, yes. So they don't have the capability to win, but they have the ability to decapitate our ability to do anything. So if they decapitate that, a... yeah, if they decapitate that ability, then they can win, they believe, at the conventional level, because then they bring us down to their level. And of course, they're more able to fight, uh, you know, at that at that level, because that's where they've been at. And we saw this when the Russians invaded Georgia, for instance. I had a colleague at the DIA who was in Georgia when the invasion happened, and he said that the Russian troops, a lot of them, were wearing Nike sneakers when they came in, and they would go into the Georgian military bases, and they knew that the Americans had given the Georgian military uh, our boots to use. And so they would go in and they would raid the Georgian military bases for the good American boots you know, don those boots and then keep going. Uh, you know, in World War II, the famous, you know, Battle of Stalingrad, uh, they didn't have the, the, the Soviet, the Red Army was so badly equipped, they only had, you know, one gun per two troops. So they would basically, and this was, this was detailed in the movie Enemy at the Gates, that opening scene, they'd give one soldier an empty gun and they'd give, they'd pair him with a soldier who had had ammunition and the uh, the logic was one of those two guys would get killed and then the other one would pick up the equipment they needed and go on to fight on so this is a pretty traditional russian way of warfare you know it's sort of the good enough uh russian a way of a 50 percent casualty rate yeah yeah and they don't care because you know it's the russians have them you know it's good enough hey who cares uh you know so that's sort of where we're at so the russians figure if you can de deprive the americans of their technological accoutrements the Americans can't handle a lot of casualties. And furthermore, uh, the U.S. military is an expeditionary force by nature. It is also accounting for less than 1% of our population. And so once you remove the all-volunteer force, can the Americans field a, a, you know, a, a, a conscripted force? Will they tolerate that? Or will there be political backlash at home that will force Washington to, do, to negotiate in the long term for a negotiated settlement with Russia over whatever we're, we're quarreling over? And that's all from removing those satellite linkages in orbit. Well, let me back up just a little bit into the cultural issues because sure. you're talking about uh, two adversaries that are eager to win. I read something recently where when Americans were asked whether they were willing to defend the country, our country, 60% of Democrats said no. Right. And I had somebody listening to one of my earlier shows about this, these issues, and they said, well, this show is political. I thought it'd be about nu nuclear strategy. Well, you can't do nuclear strategy without right. thinking about the domestic politics and what people believe. And I think we're we're stuck with a lot of people that are not thinking clearly about right. preserving our country. Right. Well, and furthermore, I, so a colleague of mine who teaches at the Naval War College, 
told me, you know, Brandon, your book would have been a national bestseller. You would have been all over the lecture circuit. You would have been, you would have been so famous had you not positively mentioned Donald Trump in your book. I and think I, there's some, I, 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 that's sort I, of what I'm saying. I think, I think that way too. But I told him, I said, I couldn't, I don't know how I could have talked about national space policy without speaking favorably about Trump because, and I tell this to my Democrat, and I, I have more of my friends are liberals and they, I'm a, I'm a millennial. So most of my friends are liberals. I said, you know, I tell my liberal friends is, you know, well, forget I'm about up in Donald, the DC area and that's right. all we have here. That's so, right. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we moved out of DC. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I tell my liberal friends and family this, I say, look, forget about the mean tweets, forget about, you know, Donald Trump. The fact of the matter is that man actually created Space Force. And for 30 years, the never Trump right, the Bill Crystals, and the, the, the more kind of conservative Democrats, if there are any left, used to always go on about how A, we need a, a Space Force, and B, we need to take NASA more seriously because that is something that would benefit us all. Well, for 30 years, nobody really took those two things seriously from either party until Trump. Trump did that. And, uh, you know, if there's one area we should have national consensus on, it's that we want to be the greatest country in space because that's where we get science. That's how we do a lot of science experiments. That's how we do a lot of, you know, a lot of economic aspects of our lives goes through, goes through space. And yeah, it's the strategic high ground. So why not have us dominate it? Because Russia and China, especially the two of them, talk openly about how they're going to dominate space for their country. And, and, and I think part of this gets back to that poll you mentioned, where we don't view the national interest anymore. We don't care. And there's a poll that I talk about in my book in which I looked at, uh, there's a, I think it was a Pew Research poll. I don't remember who did it. It was either Pew or it was one of them, one of the big ones. And they asked, uh, they asked UK, US, and Chinese teenagers back in 2018. They said, uh, "What do you want to be with when you grow up?" And they had a set of options. And the British and American teenagers overwhelmingly said they wanted to be vloggers or, or social media influencers when they grew up. And I think it was like 80 percent. And the exact same percent, 80% of Chinese teenagers said they wanted to be astronauts. Now that's scary because it shows you that in China, the young people have a real obtainable objective, scientific objective for being successful, not only for themselves, because of course STEM education is where all the money's at, but it's also has real implications at the national security level. Because well, it's, it, it's underreported, but G and I think before him, I mean, they've been pushing national greatness yes. for decades. And yes. it infuses their curriculum and they yes. talk about the century of humiliation. Yep. When after the opium wars, the Chinese yep. until Mao came were marginalized and they want to put their way, put their self back. Kids believe that. Yeah, that. And they even if they don't necessarily like Xi Jinping, the young people of China uh, are, are not going to turn on China anymore because you look at the last 20. I mean, if you look at Shanghai, if you've been to Shanghai, if you were there in 2008 and you visited there in 2018, totally different city, totally different universe. Shenzhen, which used to be sort of this kind of, you know, messy, nasty totally different city than it was 10 years ago. And so if you're a young person in China, you're no longer necessarily looking to the West for being the center of advancement and progress. You're looking in your own backyard. 
And in fact, you're kind of looking down on the West because we kind of look like a hot mess to them. And so that's very dangerous because the Chinese, particularly the young people, are very smart and very competent and very capable. And so that capability and competence is no longer necessarily going to the West. It's kind of staying in China. Or if it does go to the West, it, it, it gets what it needs from the West and it goes back home. And now China's becoming so attractive. And I talk about this, I have a third book that I've been working on, on biotech in China. My wife is a geneticist. Uh, she, she went to Yale for a PhD in genetics. And when she was at Yale, was when we were dating, she would show me these emails she'd get from Chinese uh, genetics labs in Shanghai, Wuhan, and Shenzhen saying, hey, come to Wuhan, open up a genetics lab. We know you're a Yaley. We want Yaleys. Come here. This is where all the high-tech advancements are going to be done in the future. We're building, we're building Candyland. You know, it's the field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. We're building the, the next generation of infrastructure for high-tech R&D. You as an American with your, with your Yaley background, you forget about working in the West because that's old news. You come to the new China and you'll, you'll be treated like a, like a queen. We'll, we'll, we'll pay off your student debt and you do the research here. Start the next genetics lab here. And while my wife didn't do that, obviously, because she was married to me, um, a lot of a lot of her colleagues, a lot of her colleagues did. And it wasn't just the Chinese students they were targeting anymore. It used to be China would target only students of Chinese descent. It's now, you know, white girls from Virginia that they're targeting. It's now, you know, the, the young white Indian girls from Yale, white girls from Virginia from Yale. Right, they, right. They, they want the cognitive elite. They right. Want <laughs> they want that's right. And so and, and they don't care anymore because they think that's how they're going to get the jump on yeah. the Americans. And in a way, they're right, because a lot of my wife's friends, they're in they're in China now. They're in China now. Well, it's easy to forget that just five years ago, uh, we thought we were going to bring China into the world economy and make them yeah. just like us, and we're all going to live together in the, in the, in the, what is Tom Friedman's book, The Earth is Flat? Yeah. Um, that didn't happen. No. Uh, in fact, Eamon Fingleton, who was George H.W. Bush's um, special trade representative to China, who became a real hardcore libertarian Ron Paul type in the, in the 2000s. He wrote a book in 2008 called In the Jaws of the Dragon. And he called that neoliberal theory of, send, of our corporations being the vanguard of, you know, we were going to turn China capitalist first, and in turn, that would ultimately make China democratic and not make them into an enemy that we would have to fight. He called that theory convergence theory. Well, he said, actually, what happened was reverse convergence, wherein our companies were the first Western groups to go over to China. And the Chinese Communist Party, which remember, China was a lot like um, Kim's North Korea on a larger scale in the 1970s. It was an agrarian backwater cult of personality state. And when Mao died, Deng Xiaoping took over and he was like, hey, I want to do business with the West, but I don't want to give up my political power. So when our corporations went over there, the Chinese Communist Party was very good at co-opting them and saying, if you want to do business in China, that's fine. 
but you're not going to bring your liberal democracy with you. You're going to bring your free trade, your free market capitalism, but we're going to keep our politics the same. And in fact, now that you're invested here and you're making buku bucks, if you want to keep making buku bucks off us, you're going to turn around and you're going to, you're going to use your money in Washington to get the Washington policymakers to be more amenable to us on the policy level. And that is exactly what happened. It's reverse convergence. They're making us more like them, more amenable to the CCP rather than the other way around. Well, Brendan, we have, we have just touched the surface of, we've got 14 or 15 topics. We didn't <laughs> even get to biolabs in Ukraine. We're already on to biotech in, in China. Right. Let's, let's come back and get together. I want to, yes, I'd love I want to get into the space piece and I want to get into where China is and, and uh, where we ought to be and, and how, how America can, can regain our, our, uh, our mojo to, to, to push back against this. Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, Brandon Weikert, uh, your website is, where can we find you? You're the Weikert Reich, 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 Reich Report? The Weikert Report, that's W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, report.com. And then I'm also a contributor to the Asia Times and a contributing editor at American Greatness, as well as the Washington Times. And your Twitter handle is? At We the Brandon. We the Brandon, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's go, uh, Brandon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is this has been the Bill Walton Show. Been here with Brandon Weikert and uh, talking about all things Russia, China, Ukraine, and America's future uh, as a as a superpower. Uh, join us next time. Uh, you can find us, as you know, on all the major platforms: uh, Rumble, YouTube, uh, Spotify, uh, Apple. Also, we're streaming on CPAC now on Monday nights at seven o'clock, and also we're on the For America platform. Uh, where you can catch us there. Anyway, so uh, Brandon, thank you. And we'll thank be back. You. Uh, we'll be back with more because there's a lot to talk about. And also, I want to do some some history, too. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm reading Paul Fussell's The Great War and Modern Memory. How is that? It's great. Okay. Because I'm, I'm. It's about I'm, all the poets that got formed in World War I and how it changed yep. our. We became. Uh, cynical yeah after world I mean, we went in with this edwardian uh, optimism yep. about progress and came out yeah i know about the book i've been meaning because basically my big project right now that i've been working on since 2018 is um uh a world war book that sort of contra compares what was going on in the run-up to world war one with what's going on today and how we might be headed toward i, I, I think we have to do that because we We've been living in since the fall of the Soviet Union in this kind of era of uh, happy, happy thing, happy, talk. happy things. And now yeah. it's now it's decidedly not. I don't think people understand how much things can be completely different. And it's not like I said at the beginning of the interview, it's not going back. There's no putting Humpty Dumpty no. back together again. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to the BillWaltonShow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.